0: We pray. Lord, thank you so much for this time uh, in your word with these dear men and women on a here on a Monday night. What a blessing it is to, to be called yours, if indeed we have been, and that offer is for everyone. Um for everyone. For everyone who comes to you uh through your son Jesus Christ. Um who hung on a cross for us. So we come in his name, Lord, and we just ask that you would send us your Holy Spirit in Jesus' name. Send us the Spirit of Christ and open up your word to us and make us more like him, make us love him more. Um, Thank you that you are a speaking God, that you've given us your word and you've given us your word by giving us your very self, the word made flesh. And we bless you and we love you. And um, we pray for strength and encouragement and admonishment, whatever it is that we need, Lord. Fix our eyes on you. Amen. Okay. So, <clears throat> tonight, oh, by the way, there, was a, there were apologies ahead of time, I did not have time to, uh, to print out a, a note page for you, so I'll just tell you, the title of tonight's talk is The Wrath of God Revealed Against All Unrighteousness. It's a heavy title, it's a heavy, uh, it's a heavy text, and we're going to jump right into it. So what is Paul doing here to close down chapter 1? Um, running into chapters 2 and 3 all the way through 3, verse 20. So for the next two chapters, what what is he doing? Like a trial lawyer, immediately after asserting the righteous shall live by faith at the end of 1, verse 17, with the very next word, Paul begins arguing his case to prove his assertion that the righteous shall live by faith. That's what he starts to do right at the beginning of our text in one eighteen, which I'll read in a second. Um, not only why do the righteous live by faith, but why must they live by faith? Why is that the only way to actually live? Sorry, we're in, um, we in Romans 1, in case you didn't know. And thanks if you're new here, you're extra welcome. Romans 1, we'll start in verse 18 in a second. I'll read the text. So why, why not not only do the righteous live by faith, as Paul um, says at the end of verse 17, as we left off last week, but why must they? This is the question Paul sets out to answer over the next two chapters. Why must the righteous live by faith? Put in a few other ways, let me just put it variously. Why is it impossible to live righteously except by faith? Why is living by faith the only way to live righteously? Or when I say righteously, what do I mean? What does Paul mean? Just in, par, just in parlance and in just sort of layman's terms. What is, it's a churchy word. It's kind of, ga- it can have a sort of church gauze or a stained glass sort of. What, what does righteous mean in God's terms? Not sinful? That's very true. It really just means right before God. Just when you hear righteous, just think in right standing with God. You're right in God's eyes, right? So why is living by faith the only way to live rightly before God? In other words, not by our own performance or works or good works, but by faith. Reduced, why is it impossible to live except by faith?
1: Because we
2: can't live. Right with God, unless we have the righteousness of Christ covering.
0: That's it, and we talked about that last week. And so that's exactly right. And Paul's going to start to argue that, but he's going to argue it in some pretty trenchant and dark ways. That's where he's going to start. Okay, he's going to sort of paint us all into a corner. He's going to, if you can imagine, for the next two two chapters, so for four weeks for us, he's going to push us. He's going to plunge us under the water so that we're dying for a breath, and right the nick in the nick of time. In 3 verse 21, we're about to, we're about to, your chest is getting hot and you're about to expire and pass out and die. He'll let his hands off you and you'll come up for air and what you breathe is the gospel, gospel air. And, it, and it's actually good news at that point. It's good news. It's the only, it's the new. it's the only, it's what you need to live. So he, he's going to plunge us down out of love. He's going to tell us the truth. So why is it impossible to live except by faith? And mom said, why, if we want to live and not die, is living by faith, a life of faith? which we didn't get enough time for last week, and Stephen actually asked a question. I'll try to get to it at the end. Why is a life of faith the only option if we want to live and not die? In verse 18, Paul, like I said, begins to argue his case. And characteristically, he pulls absolutely no punches. It gets dark real fast. So let's go ahead and read. I'm going to read, just for the sake of the recording, Romans 1:18, all the way to the end of the chapter. We're obviously not going to spend as much time on each verse as we did in 16 and 17. Um, I'm just going to pull three major points, kind of his, I think, three of his main main points. He makes other points. We will not be able to to cull everything tonight. Um, Let me start with verse 18. So Romans 1, starting in verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, birds and animals, and creeping things. And that right there in that verse is kind of the history of the world, except for Israel. And even Israel, when she strayed. Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and worshipped and served the creature, rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. Verse 26. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And then in verse 28, he'll take us through the rest of the chapter. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do... They not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. This is God's word. Amen. Amen. A hard word, but a good word. A necessary word. Okay, for the gospel to be good news, the bad news has to come first. I'm lousy at when I present the gospel to someone. You don't have to do it just like this, okay? But remember, Paul is presenting the gospel par excellence here in this 16-chapter work. And for it to be good news, people have to understand something of the bad news first. And I'm really bad at doing that. I just want to run straight to the good news, but then it's not so good. So we can, we can take lessons not only from what Paul says, but how he says it as we march along over these next 26 weeks or, or so together. Um, okay, what is the most, let's just start in verse 18. Don't worry, we're going to take it in three chunks, but before I get to chunk one, point one out of three, let me just ask this. We're not going to take it, you know, word by word, line by line, sadly. Uh, what is the most terrifying word in verse 18? And there's a lot of terrifying words in this passage that we just read together. What is the most terrifying word to you? That is a terrifying word, ostensibly. Yes, it is. That's probably the right answer. What else? Anything else strike you? Oh, yes, that is. And in fact, yes, that's um, that's point two. What about in verse, in verse 18? What's... um. Yes is, you know, y'all are showing me that they're all terrifying. All right. I chose the word all. All. It's a small word, three letters in the English language, right? For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all, all. ungodliness and unrighteousness. I mean, that is, remember, Paul's setting out to devastate any, any sense of human righteousness that we might hide behind or rely upon or lean on. He is just going to take a sledgehammer for the next two chapters to any of it. And I think right here, he just, I mean, this assertion sort of wins the day. Now he's going to go about to try to prove it. But if this is indeed true, that God, his wrath is revealed from heaven against all, not some, not most, not 99%, but all ungodliness and righteousness that's bad news for you. And it's bad news for me, if we're honest. Not a single sin will God allow to go unpunished. We cannot stand right before God, right? Righteous. On our own record, no chance. Um, there are sins of commission. We've, we've kind of all heard of this probably. There are sins of commission. What's a sin of commission? It's where you act. You commit, right? You commit a sin, an infraction. You break a law. You transgress. There are all sorts of different sins, but you, you co- used to act. What's a sin of omission? Well, we haven't. There. There, I mean, that's something we think about perhaps more seldom, less often. Is it things, there are things that we ought to do. Paul uses that phrase here, ought to. And we don't do. That is also a sin. There are degrees of sins. Intention, uh, uh, malignant uh, or improper intention could be a sin. Um, So there are sins of act, but there are also sins of thought. Now that's not necessarily a sin of omission. This is something different. But there are sins of things that we do, but there are also things that we think you don't, it doesn't just have to translate to fingers and toes and out of the mouth. Um, all sin, Jesus makes super clear, for, springs from the heart. What did he say about when they were super focused on outward? If you're going to rely on your own performance, your own legal performance and your own standing and your own record of righteousness to save you, you better have a very externalized law, which is why Islam has an extremely externalized law. Um, Phariseeism in the first, uh, Judaism had become a sort of, um, artifice in the first century that Jesus stepped into. And, and law was very, God's law had become very externalized. Do this, do this, do this, do this, do this, do this, do this. Don't do this, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. Don't do this. And the Pharisees were obsessed with cleanliness because you know, and all, it was all external. And don't eat this, don't eat that. And uh, Jesus says, hey, they, he, they would get on him all the time. And they would, he and his disciples would eat things and they were like, that's unclean. And what did Jesus say?
2: Not what, it's what comes out of the man
0: yeah, it's not what goes in, silly. It's not what goes into a person. This was revolutionary at the time, but it was actually taking God's people back to the real meaning of his law. It's not what goes in. You think God's so unjust to think that actually what we ingest makes us... No, it's not what goes in. It's what comes out. And that's a real problem because what comes out comes from the heart. And what comes out is a lot... It's the list of what Paul read here that I read, or what he lists here that I read. Murder, hatred. And, ha- and of course, murder, murder starts with hatred. And adultery starts with... Lust. And on and on and on it goes. Greed, slander, jealousy, and down, and down the list we could go. Um, and so God cares about our heart. All sin springs from the heart, and the heart is what God cares most about, because everything comes from it. He sees all of every human heart. Um, and, and, we, and we read that in 1 Samuel 16, 7, and other places, right, where um, Jesse lines up his sons, and the most impressive ones are the ones that think they're going to be anointed king? And, and who ends up being anointed king? Yeah, but David, the least impressed. He's not even there. He's so unimpressive. He's not even, his own dad doesn't even line him up when the kingmaker comes to town. And, and God says, don't look at the exterior. I look at the heart. I don't look at what man looks at. I look at the heart. Okay, so three points tonight. Um, number one is we suppress the truth. We suppress the truth. Where does Paul say that? at the end of our verse 18 there, right? God's wrath is revealed against from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. By their unrighteousness suppress the truth. We don't just suppress or push down or hide the truth so our sin and evil won't be found out. Suppressing the truth is part of our unrighteousness. So um, that word by is in in the Greek and it can, it's even most, most plainly just translated as In. Okay, by or in our unrighteousness, we suppress the truth, right? So we're not just doing it to to hide our sin and evil. It's actually, it's a feature. Suppressing the truth is part of our evil and unrighteousness. Uh, It's a feature of our sin to try our most, to push truth away, bless you, insofar as it exposes our evil and our guilt. That word suppress, it means to push down like a a beach ball, like when you're in the pool or the ocean and you try to push a, a ball filled with air down under the water, what happens? It pops up, and like it's it's fun for kids to try to like you sit on it and you try to keep it under the water, and it's virtually impossible for any length of time, for a long length of time, to keep it under. You try to push down that thing, eventually it's going to pop up. Um, it's like holding someone under the water until they drown. It's like holding a pillow over someone's face until they stop breathing. It's that forceful. That's the kind of language Paul's using here. That much effort is required to suppress. The truth so we can do, so it stops accusing me, so I can do what I know is wrong. That's what Paul's saying. That much effort and that much intention are involved as we suppress the truth in our unrighteousness. And that much knowledge that what we've done is wrong. Just as much knowledge as if somebody smothers someone in their sleep with a pillow. Truth exposes our guilt before God, so we expend tremendous amounts of energy to get rid of truth. We do this with language, pro-choice. Don't worry, we're going to go on both sides. I always try, do my best to go on both sides, right and left, to offend everyone. Because the gospel, it offends us all, because we're all guilty. Pro-choice, right? What is that? What is pro-choice? That's a nice, those are two nice sounding words. I'm pro and I'm choice, and I'm pro-choice. Yeah, it's killing humans. It's killing the most defenseless humans among us, right? It's, it's pro-choice is, is pro-murdering unborn babies. Okay? Um, that's, but, but listen, to the, my point is, not that, my point is the language, pro-choice. Sounds really nice. Um, who wouldn't be pro-choice? Because if you're not pro-choice, you're anti-choice. That's terrible. Why would I want to be that? Um, my point is we do this with language. We suppress truth with language. Mercy killing? What's mercy killing? It's becoming more and more euthanasia. popular in the West. Yeah, euthanasia. Killing. The killing. The yeah, what would you say, Kenya? When and we're hearing more and more stories coming out of Canada and even in the United States and other places of people that really don't want to die and they're just, the society's saying, really, you really need to, you're costing us too much. You're... And so as the value of life goes down and as we move away from God and we suppress the truth, we, we call it mercy killing, but it's really murder. Um, concentration camps, what were those? Were they concentrating? Were they working really hard? Were they focused? Were they focus camps? No. Oh. Focused on... They were murder camps. They were stuffing Jews in ovens. The final solution. That sounds good, too. Like, no. It was the intentional, de- desire to intentionally exterminate. And you notice that language? Exterminate? What do we do? What does an exterminator do when he comes to your house? Kills. Kills roaches. That's the only way we could justify killing human beings is calling them non-human. Roaches or whatever. Uh, Uh, The final solution sounds great. It was a a desire to get get rid of Jews completely from the face of the planet, from Germany. And they killed six million of them. Um, Gulags or work camps, the Gulag Archipelago in the Soviet Union, right? Work camps, that sounds good. Work's good. I tell my kids all the time, work makes you stronger. No, what was a Gulag? What was a work camp? Similar thing, right? Just send them up there and kill them, get rid of them. Uh, um, Stalin had a phrase, um, no person, no problem, Gender fluidity sounds good. It's not good. We call greed success in our culture. We call pride being driven. Sometimes there's a good success and sometimes there's a good driven, but these words that we use, yeah, we, we use them. The point is we use them to suppress the truth in our righteousness. Sleeping around, there's one. I'm just sleeping around. He's sleeping around. Did you sleep with him or her? What does that mean? Did we take a nap together? <laughs> no, of course not. And on and on we could go. You get the point, right? We do it with language. We do it in many other ways. Um, we do this with mockery in fancy arguments in books. I think of the new atheists. They're not so new anymore. Uh, but just mocking the idea of God, calling belief in God, like believing in leprechauns, making Christians feel small for believing in, hey, you're, you, don't, you don't care about evidence. You're just, uh, you're just taking this leap of faith. It's like believing in, the uni- in unicorns, right? So we mock um, we write books, we expend tremendous, think about this, suppressing the truth, the beach ball, you know, holding someone under until they drown, they're fighting, they're fighting. Think about all the energy that's in the money, in the time and life that's spent arguing against leprechauns. That would be s- silly. We all laugh at that person. You're arguing against a leprechaun. We all know leprechauns don't exist. Why do you think they're spending so much forceful energy and time and so much of their lives arguing against something that they think is on the level of a leprechaun because they know They know that they know deep, deep down that God is. That God is. And without God, without the I am, nothing else is. They know. They're expending tremendous amounts of energy, suppressing the truth and their righteousness. Are the atheists right when they insist that they are convinced that there is no God? Bertrand Russell, who was once, maybe before the New Atheist, England's England's perhaps most famous atheist. He was a master mathematician, extremely logical. He wrote in 1957, Why I'm Not a Christian. And he said... um, I think it was Bertrand Russell. So I didn't look this up, but I think it was Russell or Lord Al, uh, Lord Alfred North Whitehead. But I believe it was Russell. Somebody can fact check me later. Um, who said he that he was asked on your maybe on his deathbed or before that he said when you, if you die and you get to heaven and you realize there is or if you die and you encounter that there a god you encounter God and you realize that you're wrong uh, as a committed atheist what will you say to him and he would say he said not enough evidence not enough evidence. Paul flatly refutes this in verse 19. He says what? What does he say in verse 19? Uh, contra what Russell said. There's not enough evidence. You haven't provided enough evidence for me to believe that you exist. What does Paul say in verse 19?
2: The evidence is plain.
0: It's plain. God has made it plain to them. In verse 20, he tells us how. How? These invisible attributes. Mm-hmm. And how are those revealed? How are those visible, invisible attributes visibly revealed? True nature. Yep. Nature, and Paul uses that word, and I, la- I prefer the word, especially in our culture, creation, because it implies a creator. Um, creation or nature, the first book of God, the second book. So the first book of God is, creation is often called, the, or nature, called the first book of God by theologians. Why? Because it, it's God's writing, in a sense, through so much of what he's made, telling us so much about, as Paul said, what he's like, his invisible attributes, and name some of them, name some of the things we can see, even in a broken creation. What are the, some of his invisible attributes that creation or nature shows us?
2: Beauty, power. Yeah.
0: Yeah, right there. Those are two very prominent characteristics. Creativity, duck platypus. Are you kidding me? Anteater? I mean, does God have an amazing sense of humor? Wicked, wicked sense of humor. Millions of Not stars wicked, stars. literally. Hmm? Oh, stars. just the power is beyond. And even the zaniness, you know? I mean, just Uranus is on its side. We have gas planets, gas giants. We have rock planets. We have fire planets. We have, none of them are evenly spaced. They are, they're in ellipses, not in circles. I mean, he's, there's an asteroid belt between, what, Mars and Jupiter. And there's a storm that's twice the size of Earth on Jupiter. And on and on and on we could go. We have stars. I just told my son the other day, I said, quasar. And he goes, what's a quasar? And I was like, it's a star that, like, spins so fast and it emits these radio pulses. And it's amazing. And if you look at, I mean, C.S. Lewis preferred instead of space, which implies, what does the word space imply? Emptiness. Or suggest? Emptiness. Emptiness. but. Technology. And even in the emptiness, sterility. In the emptiness, we know, and I, told, I was telling set this today, dark matter, we're learning more and more. There is actually no such thing as emptiness. what with are asking, why, where does dust come from? Like the dust particles that you see in a sunbeam. I'm like, I don't know. Skin follicles, <laughs> but not just. You know, <laughs> even if you haven't been in a room for years, you hope a little shaft of light comes in and all, there's all this dust. But in space, astrophysicists have known for quite some time now that dark matter actually is there in the space, in the emptiness. And it composes more of the mass of the universe than anything else. And if you look at pictures of the Hubble t- Space Telescope, it's not space, it's the heavens. It's teeming with all sorts of color and creativity and amazing. And, they, and Psalm 19 tells us these things proclaim the attributes of God. His power, his beauty, his creativity, his sense of humor, and on and on it goes.
2: What about um, yeah. also uh, human consciousness and oh, man. consciences and knowledge of good and right and wrong?
0: Yeah. And even the argument, well, we're getting off track, but that's a great, I'm, you aren't, you aren't, but I'm about to. But just the idea that like, when somebody says, I can't believe in God because of evil, whoa, whoa, that should be, that should be the very thing, one of the very things that pushes you to God. There is no evil without God. The reason you're so offended to evil is because of God. There has to be a standard, a good for there to be evil. Um, You know, like, if I kick this table and then I, sorry, this is horrible, but I kick Laurence in the face. (laughs) We all know how wrong that would be for so many reasons, not least of which because she's an amazing person. So sweet. Why would I ever do that? Point is, if there's no God, if everything is just stardust, if there's a homogenous universe, which means it's all the same, there is no difference between kicking dear Laurence in the face and kicking this table. There's absolutely no difference. We just think there is. And we know that's not right. We know that's not, you know, pouring hot water uh, in a cup and pouring it on Laurence's head. And that's from Francis Schaefer, That's not me. Um, is, is should be, it, it is the same. Put, putting Jews in ovens and putting some corn on the cob on the grill. Same. We know it's not. Torturing babies, raping women. We're just thinking of the worst possible things. They're not worst if there's no God. If, it's all, if everything's stardust, it's just the same as or stomping on a leaf. We know that's not right. There are so many other things in addition. And Paul just brings up one, really. Creation. There's so many other things. Even meaning itself is an amazing argument. There's no meaning. If everything's just a c- concatenation of uh, atoms bouncing around, there's no, there's no reason to trust anything I'm saying in any train of logic over dirt on the ground. There isn't. There's no logical basis for it. And We could go on. There's so many evidences of a God. we push pushed them all down. Mainly because, not because we're not convinced up here, but Paul is saying mainly because why? Because we want to what? We want to be God. And we want to be God. We want to suppress the truth so we can live how we want to live, unrighteously. It's ultimately, there are these sorts of arguments we have to work through, but ultimately Paul's saying, don't ever forget this because it's true. You can lean on it. It's truth. Ultimately, we want to be God. We want to live how we want to live in our own way in unrighteousness, not with God at the center of things telling us how to live, but with me at the center of things. And that stems from our rebellion. And that is what Paul is saying is at the heart, the beating heart of our, of our rebellion in our sin. Um, and so, okay, so Paul says he's made it plain to them in the first book, the second book being the book that we have here. We can learn all sorts of things. This isn't part of the lesson, really, but just to sort of finish the thought, this is the first book, as it were. Uh, sorry, creation is the first book, nature, that uh, tells us so much about God. But the second book, so that's all general revelation. This is special revelation. The written word of God that takes us to Jesus. The creation can tell us a lot about God. It cannot tell us that for God so loved the world that he gave us his only son to die for us on a Roman cross. It cannot tell us that how much God loves us in that way and that that is the only way to be saved. It cannot tell us that. This book, this amazing book, this second book, tells us that, this special revelation. So the first book, though, is enough for us to go, there is a God. There has to be. But we push it down. Um, okay. Yeah, and, and like uh, Jordan said, he mentioned conscience and other things. There's creation. Think of stars. But think of the, the molecular, you know, the subatomic cells. We now know the supercomputer. We know more about the stars in the heavens than ever. We know more about the, the subatomic invisible uh, level down here. We know about the heavens because of the Hubble Space Telescope. We know about the things down here because of microscopes. nano, nano. Uh, we know about nanotrucks and that cells are like supercomputers. They used to think, even a hundred years ago, they thought a cell was like a globule of jelly. I mean, Darwin thought that the eye was pretty not... He knew it enough to know that it was so complex that his... He said something based on his deathbed, like, the eye is so complex that there's no way it could have arisen by chance and energy. No way. He knew. But we know so much more about the eye and about subatomic things now and about how complex they are. Um, and, and so I think that God has given us access to information because we are so railing in the West and in parts of the world against his existence that he's, he's giving us um, more and more evidence that he is. But still, we, we suppress, we suppress, we suppress. Um, and one of the reasons Darwinism is so damaging is because it severs that connection between creation and God. It gives us... It gives us uh, a way out. People say, hey, I, I chose Darwinism because it allowed me to be an intellectually fulfilled atheist. Right? I, can, I can say there's this argument that says, yeah, it didn't come about through God. It cuts, it cuts away everything Paul's saying here. And, or it inv- involves a system. It offers a system that says, no, it all rose by chance. Where did that thing come from that it rose from? No, I don't know. There's no answer for that. But it all came about somehow. Okay, so, um, so it turns creation into mere nature or rather mother nature which we'll get back to this, but that's one of the reasons we hear so much about the environment today. So that's one of the reasons, not the only, and we'll get back to that. So why does this behavior evoke or provoke, to use a better word, God's wrath? That was the first word that y'all chose that that you thought was in verse 18, really scary, and it is. He sounds mean. Is God mean? (laughs) Why this wrath against our suppression of the truth? Why? Because God can't tolerate
2: sin.
0: He can't tolerate sin. That's true. Keep going. He's just. He's just, yep, and he can't allow injustice, just like a good judge. We talked about that last week. He's a good judge. He can't allow it. Why else? He is the truth. As the truth, he, in the sense in which he has no choice, he has to act in accord with his character. And he cannot allow untruth to go on. In his mercy, he allows it to go on for a while, but he must put an end to it eventually.
2: Well, and he also knows that when we keep sinning and going towards the untruth, it hardens our hearts against him. And he made us for him.
0: Yes. It's like he's yes. Saying, Come yes. Back. So there's a sense in which I'm going to jump on that. There's a sense in which he, it's out of love, not a sense in which yeah. it is underneath. I would argue every every bit of this passage and every bit of his wrath. And I'm getting ahead of Paul, and that's okay. I want to be able to preach the gospel to us every time in the next four weeks. If I don't, if I don't offer you any hope, if I present the gospel, there'll be zero people here by the end. Um, but Paul, he doesn't let up for two chapters, so I can't. Uh, we we got we to follow his train, but I do believe that um, why this wrath against our suppression of truth, the, 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 every answer y'all gave is right, but the one word underneath it all, the most fundamental thing that I would give is love. God loves his creation, us most of all as the highest of his creation and dearest to his heart, and he therefore hates to see his creation ruined. Sin ruins God's creation, and it ruins us. Because he can't be with sin, and it sends us away from him. And he hates that. And so he reacts in fury against that which is ruining what he loves. In a good parent, love is always behind anger. So now not always behind my anger because I'm not a good parent. Jesus called me evil in the, in the Sermon on the Mount. And he's right. He never kowtowed to humans. He knew it was in man's heart. And without God, there's only evil in my heart if you peel back enough layers all the time. Love is always in a good parent, and God is the best parent. Love is always behind anger. And enough, we, you know, we're good enough parents to know that, if, so those of us who are parents in the room, you've seen a good parent. Like, there's a lot of times in which I'm, even with, with an alloyed love, I'm loving my kid, and if I'm angry with him, there's love behind it. There's love behind it. You know, what, what, what do you do with a kid that's, I use this illustration a lot because it's effective, but with a two-year-old, let's say Malachi, who's, I'm, dunking, I'm dunking with him last night at, on the basketball goal, and he's, loving every minute of it. And then you come out or I'm there and I, and he knows don't run down the street. And then he runs down the street and a car's zooming, a car's coming. And whether it's you or me, what do we do? Ah! And we not only react in anger, but we grab him, And then afterwards, it's not going to be like, Oh, darling, you know, it's gonna, no, no, no. And to him, it seems like all he, in his two-year-old mind, he just thinks, you're hating him right now. You hate me. You hate me. That's his only, in his tiny brain, do you think the distance between Rachel and Malachi is, is less big than the distance between us and God? No, no, no. God's wrath seems to us like a mean parent. No, no. He's, it's 100% out of love. It's 100% because he loves us and he hates to see sin ruining us. That is underneath everything Paul's saying here. Look at the progression in verse 21. I'm going to get more to that. I'm going to close with more of that love. Um, Look at the progression of verse 21, though, as we move through the text. They knew him as God. They knew him as God, but they did not, secondly, they did not honor him or give thanks to him. And again, I'm passing over a lot. I'm trying to get the main blocks here, but we can't, we can't do a line by line in this text. And that'll be the case through most of Romans, but I'm going to try to give you all enough to be able to Preach the gospel to you, point us to Jesus, unpack what Paul's saying, and help you understand the, the letter better. Ingratitude, but look at that, they did not honor or give thanks to him. Isn't that amazing? Ingratitude is one of the major things that gives people over to utter destruction. Ingratitude. We talk about this with our children all the time. This makes my blood run cold. Ingratitude, not having thanks, not giving God thanks, can give us over to utter destruction. Gratitude is not only a sign of a healthy heart, it is the start of a healthy heart, the road to repair. You can do no better than just start filling your life with moments of praising God for who He is and thanking Him for all that you have. Literally. And if we could just all leave here and we could take that one thing from tonight. Just spend more time in your prayer and in your conversation with God throughout the day, out loud or not, just praising Him for who He is, for His invisible and amazing attributes of building creation and through His Word and by His Spirit, and preeminently through his life and death and resurrection for us. And then giving thanks to him for everything. What if tomorrow you woke up and you only had what you've given thanks to God for the day before? Whoa, whoa. Man, I wouldn't have a lot. But let's, let's be in that, that life of thankfulness and gratitude will change the trajectory. I think it'll change the temperature of our hearts. It'll change our trajectory. Uh, ingratitude is so damaging and gratitude is so powerful. Um. Thirdly, notice the developed anthropology here, and I didn't have as much time as I wanted to dig into this, but that's okay. Head and heart are connected here in, um, where am I? In verse, we're in verse 21. Yeah, for they, but they became, so verse 21, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. It's a developed anthropology. There's a head and a heart that's connected. The heart here doesn't just mean emotion or affection. In the, in the biblical mindset, it's the core. Everything, everything that you are, your intellect, your soul, your body, your affections, your emotions, they all tie into your heart. Um, that's why Jesus said, out of the heart, the mouth speaks. Out of the core of who you are. That's why um, when I'm the, worst, I'm the worst version of myself at home because that's who I really am. Every, every other place, I'm just putting on airs. Not just, probably, to be fair. But I, I, I put on a nice, I want people to like me. I have to be on my best behavior. At the office, if I acted like I do at home sometimes, I would not, they would kick me out. All right, so I let down my hair, and all of a sudden, Mr. Nasty comes out at home. Because why, because, because people bring it out of me at home? No, because that's, that's what's down deep. Do we need to put videos in? <laughs> 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 Pastor damning himself through his teaching. <laughs> Indeed. Um, so, futile thinking and darkened hearts are connected here in Paul's teaching, and that's in an extremely advanced anthropology. Um, so, sin has noetic effects, is what, one of the things that Paul is saying. It says their, their thoughts became futile. It affects the noose in the Greek or the mind. Sin affects the mind. Uh, and one of the, one of the things the Enlightenment was built on was that uh, we can think... Um, well, <laughs> one, of the, one of the things the Enlightenment was built on is that our, fall, our, our thinking is not fallen, certainly. Um, and Paul, Paul destroys that here. Um, you can be in rebellion against God whether through outright atheism or loose living or through trying to manipulate him through religion or in some other way. And you can build a great bridge or build a great company or make great grades, but the closer you get to things that touch your autonomy and your sense of the control of your life, sort of like we were touching on earlier, the more your true and rebellious self will raise its head. Um, Christ says, give me your life. And your carnal, life says, your carnal self says, hell no. But you can excel in other areas. Your mind can crank uh, beautifully in those areas. But in the end, it will disintegrate. It will disintegrate. Um, So we can see the connection. The thoughts become futile and the heart darkens. We tend to disconnect them in our our culture, um, largely because the West is is a post-enlightenment, on a post-enlightenment hangover. But there's been a resurgence, a rediscovery. Um, Two books that pop to mind immediately. There's a lot out there. Descartes' Error and Voltaire's Bastards. Um, yeah, I just wanted to get that word. And no, I didn't. But it's uh, it's it's a book, and both of them touch on EQ, um, emotional um, intelligence. Emotion and intelligence are connected. To be emotionally out of tune is to be dumb, in a real sense. Even if your SAT scores were really really high. Hart
2: um, was a dualist. He thought mind and body were
0: fundamentally separate right. There substances. Right. But that's anti-question. Uh huh. That's exactly right. We're psychosomatic. We're connected. We're connected. That's exactly right.
1: What is EQ, Festa?
0: Um Just emotional intelligence. Um, I'm not. A, I'm certainly not an expert on it. I think Kenya would probably know way more than I do about it, and other people here. But um,
2: Doctor Velasquez would know more
0: about. Doctor Velasquez. <laughs> So we can see the disintegration of the mind and heart, the futility and darkness creeping in the verses that follow, verses 22 and 23. Um, we can see it in ancient indigenous societies like the Aztecs, um, like, see the Aztecs and others in verse 23, where um, there was all sorts of uh, human sacrifice and slavery um, going on in those societies that when... Um, uh, when folks from Spain and the new world uh, and the old world came over, and uh, there were a lot there are a lot of ways in which those folks now that doesn 't excuse what what happened, but there are a lot of folks in which, ways in which those folks they a lot of them wanted to be rescued from the slavery that they were under um, and so you can see a lot of that just in that one verse, and as, as I said as we were reading it, Paul sort of um, he kind of throws a net over really so much of human civilization outside of God's chosen people, Israel. And even Israel as they strayed from God. In verse 23, it says, and it may exchange the glory of the immortal God for images <coughs> resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things, right? So, thanks God. We appreciate you know, all the ways in which creation shows that there is one almighty God, but we're going to worship things that you made instead. And that um, it darkens our hearts and it turns our thoughts futile um, but we can, still, we can still build amazing societies, right? Um, our society, I see you more in verse 22. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. We're starting to see lots of verse 23 as well. But claiming to be wise, they became fools. Why do you think that the environment has become so important in the West? Do you think it is unrelated? This is a question. Do you think it is unrelated to the ebbing, to the lessening of the worship of the one true God? Why do you think environmentalism in the West has taken on a religious, even fideistic, fervor? What do I mean by fideistic?
2: Uh, faith,
0: faith-like. Yeah, yeah, okay. so like, yeah, so faith-like and, and absent any evidence. Fidei- fideism is believing in God uh, contrary to evidence and even not even paying attention, not needing any evidence. You just believe to believe, right? True, true faith has great evidence, What did Jesus say when Thomas didn't believe in him? When the resurrected Christ, he said? Those of you who have believed and did not see. And have not seen. And then what did he offer to Thomas? He said, hey, Thomas, you you want evidence? Forget about it. You're out. No, what what did he say to Thomas? He came over and he said, hey, touch my side. Touch my hands. And Thomas said, that's enough. I've, I didn't even need it. I don't need to touch you, my Lord and my God. I need to bow down. But Jesus, there's tons and tons and tons and tons of evidence that were given in the scriptures and in creation. That's what Paul's pressing in on here. We have tons of evidence to believe. But there's this sort of contrary to the data, contrary to the evidence, uh, religious, even fideistic fervor to being attached increasingly to environmentalism in the West. We will worship. Environmental obsession is nature worship dressed up in modern garb. We push God out; something is going to take its place. Could be sports, could be money, could be Mother Nature. Um, we will worship. Could be self. It's always self if it's not the Lord, right? As Christians, we are to care for and cultivate the earth, not to worship her. She. There's a reason Saint Francis of Assisi called the sun uh, brother sun and the moon sister moon. Uh, not because he thought they're on the same level, but because, hey, we're all creatures. I don't worship you. Uh, But to have her be our mother, the one that gives us birth, as it were. Um, We're to care for and cultivate creation. That's all in Genesis 1 and beyond. But worshiped, she's not our, our, our sister or our brother. She will devour us. Literally, what happens because of sin? What is the earth? We were made to have dominion, over the earth, to cultivate the earth, to have it bring forth life? What does sin do? What does the earth literally do? What will the earth do if Jesus doesn't, if he tarries and doesn't return? In a in, in hundred years, where will we all be? Not, I'm saying with the Lord, of course, where will our bodies be if the Lord doesn't return? The earth literally swallows you. food for worms. Yeah, dust to dust. Um, it, that's a sign of judgment. Uh, Worshipped, she will devour us. Nature will devour us. This is the case with any good thing that we worship, any good thing made by us into an ultimate thing. So moving on, professing to be wise, they became fools. The examples in our society are almost limitless. They multiply day by day. Hitler's brain drain, just some, some irony of profess to be wise and they became fools instead. Some ev- bits of evidence here are uh, examples. Hitler's brain drain, he kills and he kicks out... Um, of his country, his smartest, uh, lots of his smartest people, the Jews, you know, they, would, they were leaving in droves, if, if possible. And um, that's a, there's a huge story behind uh, how they created, uh, I mean, who helped develop uh, nuclear physics, who helped develop the atom bomb, uh, Einstein, and so many others. They do, a, lot of, a lot of the Jews that were kicked out of Germany were behind the development of the rockets and the space race. Um, so he kills and kicks out his country's smartest people. They end up helping his enemy, the Allies, beat him. Abortion and homosexuality and divorce um, all swing the axe at the root of the state, the almighty state. It's becoming more and more worshipped. We worship nature. We, as we push out God in the West, we worship the state. Very similar to Rome. Rome, Rome worshipped the family. Rome, Rome worshipped the state. Um, it's called statism, by the way. Not to respect the state, but to worship the state. It becomes this terrible tyrant, anything but God that's worship. So, um, abortion and homosexuality and divorce all swing the axe at the root of the state that promotes them. The state, our state is promoting increasingly abortion, homosexuality, and divorce. Think about how just very, on a very plain service level, all those things militate against the health of the state. Abortion really kills your citizens, right? Um, uh, homosexuality you literally cannot produce any more children if every let's just do a thought experiment if every single person was a homosexual practice homosexuality in a state you would be over you'd be done you would have no more people I'm not even I'm not I'm making zero moral judgments right now I'm just saying practically that's what happens it's an enemy of the state on that on that surface level divorce similarly the family is the most integral unit of of the state and and divorce to promote that sort of thing in the single parent family, and and not to promote uh, a healthy uh, marriage between a man or a woman, and to, and to say you know divorce is an evil. Sometimes it's necessary, but we encourage the family. We want families to stay together. We want kids to have both parents. It's not always possible, but we want that. Uh, and there's so much militating against that today. Is again, it's to strike the root at the. It's to strike the axe at the root of the tree of the state. So again, this is a this is an example of professing to be wise. As we move away from God, as we suppress knowledge of God, we're becoming fools. Um, one simple takeaway from, Paul, uh, from Paul's terrifying, astringent words. Um, never profess to be wise. Never profess to be wise. What does he say? Professing to be wise, they became fools. Never profess to be wise. Take this to the bank. To profess wisdom is a sure sign of unwisdom. Seek to learn, to know, repent. Seek help. Have a humble attitude. Pride goes before the fall and it's the root of all kinds of evil. Okay? So, what was my first point? I even forgot. We suppress the truth and our righteousness, something like that. Mm -hmm. Right? We suppress the truth. Point one. Okay, point two. Point two. God gives us up. Point two. God gives us up. So, we suppress the truth, point one. And two, God gives us up. We see this how many times in this text? Can you count? How many times? More than once. God gives us up three times times. in verses 24, 26, and 28, evenly spaced. It's kind of how Paul builds his argument. God gives us up in verse 24, 26, 28. That means it's really, really important to Paul's argument here. He gives us up in judgment. This word means to deliver over or to hand over. The last thing you want God to do is to let you go. The last thing. Just imagine the sun letting the earth go. Freedom! Oh, it's getting cold. You're done. You're toast. You do not want the author, if you think the sun is life, it's nothing compared to the living God. He's breathed out the suns and keeps every, every single molecule going by the word of his power. The worst, thing, the worst thing that can happen to you is for God to let you go. But see, in our society, the more godless we get, the more, the more we think liberation is being able to do what we want to do. And that's what sin does to all of us all of us, not just the big sins I've, I've mentioned. Don't worry. In a second, we get to point three, and that is focus on the elephant in the room, but it's also to, to get to Paul's text where he talks about all these sins that all of us have committed, if we're honest, right? So the worst thing uh, that can happen, um, the worst thing God can do is not to bring pain into our lives. This is actually a good thing in the Bible, all over the Bible. Psalms, uh, 39, 10 through 11, and 1, 71 are just two examples of literally hundreds talking about God bringing pain into our lives um, as an instrument to turn us from worthless things to the supremely worthwhile thing, Him. We talked about that yesterday, point, point three in the sermon. Paul shows here that the worst thing God can do is to give us up to our desires. Now that sounds strange to American ears. The worst thing God can give us is to let us follow our own hearts. And the American mantra right now is follow your heart. That's the Paul is saying, that is the worst possible thing. God gives us up. He lets us do what we want to do. Yay, that sounds like freedom. It's not freedom. It's the pathway to hell. The worst thing that God can do is to give us up to our desires. As a parent, imagine giving your one, two, three, four, or five-year-old up to his or her desires. It's easily illustrated. Let him go. Let him do exactly as he pleases every time. How long would this last? How much candy could that kid eat? (laughs) How far could that kid walk before he got utterly lost or abducted or hurt himself? I mean, it wouldn't take long. It would not take long. Rachel's smiling because she's like, that would be the most cruel thing. Of course, we know that. You'd have to be the worst parent, okay? But that is is judgment when God just lets us go. We do not want that. Um, How horribly deadly even would this be to do with a child? Paul says that God lets us go. He gives us what we want. He gives us over. Fine, do what you want. And here's the scary thing. His intervention aside, the thing that we want is never him. Not one single time. Never him. This is why that the divines of old spoke of the doctrine of election or predestination as a gracious doctrine or a doctrine of grace. Because left to ourselves, we will choose not God every time. Unless he chooses some, none will come to him. Now, is it a mystery? Of course. Paul leaves it at that. But it is a gracious, it is a gracious doctrine. Left to ourselves, we will never ever choose God. God in his grace chooses some. And why that is is a mystery, and it's certainly not based on our own goodness. We know that very clearly from Ephesians 1 and other places. And, and Romans 9, we'll get to that. Um, okay. Our actions flow downhill from our thinking. Verse 28. Verse 28. Our actions flow downhill from our thinking. Um, see the litany of verse 29. All this flows from verse 28, from a debased mind. There's this litany of sins starting verse 29, but all this flows from a debased mind. Um, okay, the West, in this current cultural moment, is I am basically, I am so smart, we are so smart, dummies believe in the Bible, they have faith, we have science, and use our minds. That's a very much a caricature, but it's sort of there. Now look what comes from this sort of arrogance. Professing to be wise, they became fools. They became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Quote, they were filled with all manner of unrighteousness what follows are all things that are not right with god what are they what is not right with god look like well let's see i'm just going to read the list What does not right with god look like so so god think about it this way god is the opposite of what i'm about to read evil covetousness see if you can identify with any of these malice i know you're gonna to have to try hard they're full of envy murder insolent you ever hated someone from your heart right strife sorry murder strife deceit Maliciousness you ever been malicious? I haven't. Ha, that's a lie. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, zing, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. This is all not God, this is all anti God. This is God is the opposite of all these things. He is truth, the truth, beauty, goodness, and light. This is falsehood, ugliness, evil, and darkness. Do you want a society like this? Simply remove God from the picture, from your worldview. Ban him from schools and the public square and persecute Christians, and you will get it in spades. See the West pulling apart at the seams. The cities are the worst. Why? Because they're, more, they're the most progressive. They the tend to be the most godless right now. And they're where the most people are. So, God loves them the most. And that's why he has us here. Salt, light, as I said earlier, as we all know, that the scriptures, and because of the scriptures move this way, history is moving this way, move from a garden in Genesis to a city in Revelation, right? For the first time in history, the 21st century is a century of the city. We've, we've 10 years ago, moved from more people in cities than in the country. First time in history. Um, it's the arc of scripture, so it's the arc of history. God loves the city. Even Nineveh, that evil city, was a, an important city to God. Houston is an important city to God. His heart. Remember, Paul's talking about all this wrath because he's driving toward the gospel because God cares about us. And we have to understand how deadly all this is, how horrible our condition is, how deadly and devastating and dangerous our condition is so that we run to Christ. And he's holding us under the water. He's holding us under the water. and we're, we're more and more and more gasping for air. If we think we're okay, then we're in the worst possible position. Um. Big mistake with all this, as I talk about this, as we think about it together, is to look at this list, these sins, and see the problem is out there. Um, G.K. Chesterton, you've heard this before, but it's a true story about, is a man about 20 years older than C.S. Lewis. He's an English uh, author and thinker. And he, there was a, in in short, there were a bunch of thinkers, prominent thinkers of the day that were asked by, I believe it was the Times of London, to... um, to weigh in on what was wrong with the world. I mean, there, there were, the, the world was just as messed up then as it is now, and then two world, world, world wars followed, just to, to, just to prove the point. Um, but they asked these thinkers what's wrong with the world, and there were all sorts of answers, but Chesterton wrote in, the, he, he was a very quippy, very uh, um, co- um, quick, um, funny, but, but, but poignant, Entrenchant writer, and he uh, he wrote in the shortest answer. He said, "Dear sir, as an answer to your question, what is wrong with the world? I am sincerely yours, J.K. Chesterton." If we read this list and identify, and um, oh, and don't identify, I think I said, and I said, "and identify," right? If we read this list and don't identify with this list, we're in trouble. Um, because God, remember, must hate and punish all unrighteousness. Remember verse eighteen. Um, there's only one type of person, oh, okay, I did write that right. If, you re, if we read this lesson, and we identify with these sins, we're in trouble. Because God, God responds, he has to respond to wrath against every, everything that is not perfect righteousness. And if you get too close to the sun, you burn up. That's not, not, not because the sun's evil, right? Um, God cannot be with sin. He is pure goodness and truth and beauty. And so we're in trouble if we identify with some of these sins. And let me tell you, I identify with all of these sins. I've never murdered someone, but I've committed plenty of murder by hating people in my heart. And, I, and I'm very well familiar with so, so many of these sins. But there's only one type of person in more trouble than the one who identifies with these sins, the one who reads this list and can't identify. The greatest sinners are the ones who see their sin the least. you notice that about people? Yes. The greatest sinners are the ones who see their sin The least. The greatest saints are the ones who see their sin and hate it the most. J.I. Packer said about the Puritans, when you read their prayers, he's like, either they were, one of two options, either they were way more sinful than we are. When you read their prayers, you're like, oh my gosh, your heart is full of vice and horrible things, just like this list here. Or they were either way worse than we are, or they were way more aware of God's holiness and therefore of their own depravity and could be honest about it, because they knew their righteousness did not depend on them. Look at Martin Luther. Whew. He would stay up all night confessing his sins, and that's why the verses that we looked at yesterday changed everything for him. When he realized God's acceptance of him, his, God's embrace of him did not depend on his own righteousness. He knew that he couldn't, he couldn't provide it. It had to come from outside. It had to come from elsewhere. It came from Jesus. So the more I see God's holiness, the more I see my own sin. That's the way it works. And the more I see the gulf between me and God, and so the more I see my need for a great Savior, a righteousness not my own, alien, outside of me, and a payment for my sin also outside of me but for me, right? So two things, just pick out two. I I would love on my Christmas list. It's like, let's go through every single one of these sins and press in and unpack it. We can't do that. Two things that stand out on this list, um, to me, just immediately, were haters of God, and disobedient to parents, haters of God, and disobedient to parents, um, disobedient to parents. Uh, in the Hebrew Bible, there is what's the punishment for a child striking his parent? Yeah, death, capital punishment.
2: My dad never ceased to remind. <laughs> you. Never remind you of that.
0: <laughs> capital punishment sounds draconian. Sounds like a major overreach. No, no. It's a severe mercy for society and possibly for the child. It's a cutting out of the cancer. It is not a mercy for the surgeon to leave the cancer in the body. If a child that is striking his parents as a child grows up, what do you think that kid is going to do to the rest of society? And if that child is, has the hands of the society put on him and knows he's about, to be, he's about to go to meet his maker, do you think that there's a chance? For repentance, absolutely. If you let that kid go, hardly any chance. So, even something like this, right? But, my point there, that's sort, of, that's sort of a tangential step. Disobedient to parents. My point is, it pops out at you because it's all these things, and you're like, ooh, these are horrible, and then disobedient to parents, is like, whoa, it's right there in the list. Who hasn't been? You know, we, all, um, we all deserve death. We all deserve God's wrath for all unrighteousness. God is, God's wrath is revealed against every single bit of, of our righteousness in all of us. So, but I don't want to run out of time, and I am running out of time. We literally have three minutes left in my lecture, and then we need to get to um, questions. But uh, the elephant in the room is, and, I, and I can't, you can't teach this properly and not deal with this, homosexuality, LGBTQ+. I probably, again, like I said last week, I probably left out a letter. But um, we've got to deal with this. This is point three, the elephant in the room, homosexuality, and LGBTQ, because Paul showcases it in a few verses here. So we have to at least touch on it. It's called out in this passage. It gets outstanding treatment by Paul in verses 26 and 27. Notice that it's absent in verses 29 through 31, the ones we just, that litany of sins. The message is other sins, not less bad, less deserving of death, or less death producing. None of us is exempt. All of us are without excuse. Um, the, the brief, Briefly, the outline here on Paul's sort of thinking, if that helps you, verses 21 through 23, is they became fools, Because we suppress the truth and unrighteousness, it makes us fools. We think we're wise, we're actually foolish. Verses 24 through 25, next, so God gave them up. A lot lot of body sins, he mentions body sins, sins of the body, it's kind of hazy. And then he moves in 26 and 27 to, so God gave them up again. How? Homosexual practice. He gets more specific. And then finally, 28 through 32, so God gave them up again. What? All manner of sins. What ought not to be done. Not just here and there, but filled, filled with unrighteousness. It characterizes us. How does Paul characterize homosexual sin? Just to get into it briefly, briefly. As dishonorable, shameful. All sin is, right? What what happens in Genesis 3, 7 through 8? Immediately, literally the two verses after the fall of our first parents, Adam and Eve. They eat of the fruit that's forbidden to them. And what's the first thing that happens? Say again. They realize that they're naked, which is a good thing because they were utterly transparent before everything was seen and there's no shame. All of a sudden, there's shame. Immediate shame. Shame comes from sin immediately between each other and us before God, especially. So they hide from each other immediately and they start to cover themselves and, and they don't want to be seen anymore. I'm going to opaque myself. I'm going to Put all the stuff in the closet. I'm going to be in my best behavior when I'm at work, when I'm on a first date or whatever it is. I'm, 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 there's shame in openness and transparency. What the gospel does is it brings that back, right? Um, and, then, and then, of course, when God comes, next verse in verse 8, what do they do? They hide from themselves and then? What do they do with God? Are they like, God, it's so good to see you. No, no, they, they hide from him too. All right, so shame, shame, shame. Um, all sin produces shame. The soul of shame by Kurt Thompson I hesitate to recommend a book I've never read, but I've read um, Anatomy of, The Anatomy of the Soul by him. And it, he's a neuroscientist who's also an evangelical, which is like a unicorn. Um, hard to find. But he's wonderful. From what I've read, The Soul of Shame, my, he delves into how sin produces shame, especially in those early chapters of Genesis, and, and how the Lord delivers us from that. Um, so just to recommend that. But All Sin is Shameful. But homosexual practice, why does Paul pull it out? Homosexual practice is especially shameful. Our culture says the exact opposite. Pride day. Homosexuality and gender fluidity. And by the way, I'm only pulling this out because I'm un, my job is not to tell you things I think. My job is to, unpack, to walk us through Romans and to unpack God's word to us. I promise you, it's there for a reason. It will help us. It will help us Feel our own sin and run to Jesus and it will help us understand the ailments of our culture and take those things and take our culture to Jesus. Believe me, just stay with me. Homosexuality and gender fluidity and transsexuality, these are things not to be especially ashamed of but proud of, says our culture. Proud of. The killer here is that you can never repent of something you're proud of. Shame is meant to lead to sorrow and sorrow to repentance. Our culture is trying to help LGBTQ+, but it's hurting them. It's doing them the worst disservice. Our culture is greasing the skids toward hell for those enslaved by homosexual sin. Not only is it not sin, they say it's not shameful. Not only is it not shameful, it's something to be proud of. Flaunt it. Have a parade day. Have a parade month. It is the real you. Chase and I were in an apartment complex on Richmond right across from our neighborhood, and we were talking with an, we, an older gentleman with a pride flag opened up, and we started talking with him and inviting him to something. And he said, you know, I I think it's basically I left my family, left my wife, left my kids, and I'm I just had to be true to myself. And um, it, this is who I am, right? I, this is who I am. I just had to be, and that's what the culture has. The culture has sold this man a bill of goods. He thinks he's finally being true to himself. Um, it's devastating. Um, passion. So uh, so, what does Paul say here in verse? Verse 26, for this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable, he gave them up, he let them go to dishonorable, talk about that that sum. dishonorable, shameful passions, passion, not something I'm born with or have decided to do, rather it's an ardency, something I strongly desire, like eating chocolate or fried chicken. Eating chocolate or fried chicken are not necessarily (laughs) sinful, okay, so I'm not doing a one-to-one here, but I'm just using an example. Should I therefore, I have a, I literally, I have an ardency, a strong desire, and I'm not even kidding, to eat chocolate and fried chicken. Should I therefore indulge myself eating it all the time? And, and therefore embrace the real me. No, we know this, because doing that would kill me faster. So much the worse with our sins that we embrace and are proud of. Um, okay, two more things before, on this before we close. Why does Paul showcase the, this particular sin? Why? Why does he showcase it here? That's one question we have to ask. We know he mentions many others. All earn us death. Romans 3.23 and 6.23. All sin earns us death. I can think of three obvious reasons this is not exhaustive. I can think of three obvious reasons Paul showcases homosexual sin. It is a banner example, an unfurling of verse 22. It is an example of foolishness, of people saying that they're wise and becoming unwise. Um, rather than producing divine image bearers, it produces what verse 27b, the last part of verse 27, describes. Disease and death. We know this. this is, these are facts. These are facts that aren't put in front of us anymore. But in the older literature, it's all over the place. The fruit of sex and marriage between one man and one woman is children. Most of the time, unless there's a barren couple. That's how God designed it. The fruit of sex and marriage between one man and one woman is children. That's, That's not controversial. The fruit of homosexual lust is no children, or homosexual, let's just say marriage, whatever, is no children, ever. That's also not controversial. That is a fact. Rather, it's STDs and death. That also, if you put all the fire and all the hubbub aside, that's, those are also facts. You cannot get a sexually transmitted disease from only having sex with your spouse. That's it. You cannot. Um, so, th- and that's, these are things Paul talks about. They received in themselves the penalty for their error. This is simply unpacking the text and it's just looking at medical evidence, okay? All sin is an undoing. So, so, so one, one reason, it's a banner example of professing wisdom, they became fools. Number two, all sin is an undoing. It's, it unravels the fabric of the real. Sin strikes at the root of God's love, which makes all things and holds them together. Homosexual practice showcases this because it flies in the face of the dominion mandate that God gave his image bearers at the apex of his creation of all things in Genesis 128. He said, he said uh, be fruitful and multiply, Adam and Eve. Have lots of kids and fill the earth with them. They are my image bearers. Fill the earth with my image. You cannot do that. You cannot do that in, homosexual, in a homosexual relationship. There's no fruitfulness and there's no filling of the earth with God's image. There's no maleness plus femaleness joining as one in love to produce love. This is core to what it means to be image bearers. There's a reason that in Genesis 1.26 there's a strong maleness and femaleness attached to bearing God's image. Male and female. He made them in his image and he made them male and female. That is intrinsic to what it means. Our gender is not negotiable. It is intrinsic to what it means, how God chose to make us to image him. So of course, Satan hates that. And he wants to extinguish it and eviscerate it. Of course, of course he does. But our culture tells us it's lovely. The more we stray from God. So I think that's another reason that that Paul showcases this here. Um, It is not our liberation. And out of love, out of love, we need to understand this. Out of love for those that are trapped in this or tempted by this, right? It is not liberation. Um, so no femaleness and no maleness joining as one in love to produce love. This is core to what it means to be image bearers. Homosexual practice poisons this pot. And thirdly, it is perfectly contrary to the blessedness and beauty God created us for and created for us. And as with all sin, its fruit is death. Um, okay. Okay. <sighs> Um, but God, and we're getting ahead of Paul here, but we have to say, God came to swallow death by being swallowed by death, by becoming our sin on the cross, that we might have his life. Um, just a couple things as we close and then open it up for Q&A. We might go, if, if you will allow, maybe a few minutes over, but um, you can walk out when you like. Um, I saw a love is greater than hate sign and it had like a fist with a love heart beneath it with rainbow in Austin um, outside a, a Restaurant called the Magnolia cafe, which excellent breakfast highly recommended um, But love is greater than hate and it was you know, the, it was the whole like you get the picture I mean, it was like Hate equals being against homosexuality and love equals being for it. Um, so love greater than hate of course love uh, So on the surface, it makes total sense. That's its appeal, right? So let's, let's unpack it a little. Let's exegete just a little bit. Of course, love is greater than hate. It's the conclusion that's wrong. So let's trace this out. Love is greater than hate. Therefore, embracing LGBTQ plus lifestyle is better than denouncing it. Denouncing it is hate. Embracing it is love. That's kind of the message, right? But here's the error. God's law. Um, denouncing it is hate. Embracing it is love. But the error is God's law. God's law tells us uh, what is good for us, what is life, and what is bad for us, what is death. Homosexuality leads to death. Committed monogamy leads to life. Look at the fruit. Like I said, disease and death in one case, children in the other. Um, let me put it a different way. Love hates the destruction. Stay with me. This is, this is kind of moving toward a close, wrapping all this up, going back to where we started. Love hates the destruction of the lover. If LGBTQ plus leads to true human, human flourishing, and being against it is truly wrong. It doesn't. It is God seeing his creation torn apart. And because of our love for his creation, we ought to hate it. Not hate them. Heck no. Heck no. God loved them unto death. God loved us unto death, and we're just as guilty. And we maybe struggle with that sin. And that's the gospel is offered to every single sinner. Love hates the destruction of the lover. God's raging against sin and evil is his anger overseeing that which he created and loves ruined. That is underneath and over and around all this. Calvin, let me, let me as I close down, uh, let me finish with Calvin. How could God, this is Calvin from Institutes, uh, book two, how could God, who is pleased by the least of his works, and I just want to put in a bracket here, who is, how, is, how could God, who is pleased by the least of his works, so like a snail sliding along the pavement, or a clownfish swimming in the sea. God is pleased by those things. God made the anteater. He made the leaf rustling on the cottonwood tree. Um, he made the dust particles in the, sun, in the sunbeam. He made, he made all things. How could God, who is pleased by the least of his works, the snail, the fish, have been hostile to the noblest of all of his creatures? He's, he's, helping, he's asking this question that sort of is a banner over this passage. How, there, how is there such hostility by God against the noblest of his creatures? Humans! Even angels haven't aren't made in his image. How is he so hostile? Calvin says, and then he answers. He says, he is hostile toward, and if you're going to write something down, write this down. He is hostile toward the corruption of his work rather than toward the work itself. He is hostile toward the corruption of his work rather than toward the work itself. To loop back to the beginning of our lecture, If we had, and I say this in close, if we had to give Paul's explanation of his assertion, the righteous shall live by faith, from the very next verse alone, verse 18, what would we have to say? The righteous shall live by faith alone because the wrath of God is revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Put another way, if someone wants to live and not die, to escape God's wrath, which would destroy us and will destroy us if we have to stand against it. It cannot be through trusting in and looking to our own performance, our own life. Because our own life produces unrighteousness, which provokes God's just wrath. It must rather be by trusting in and looking to the life and death of another in our place. That is what Paul is driving toward. Um, let me just recommend to you a, uh, an article. I'm not going to touch on it because we don't have time, but it's an article that actually Andrew Tinsley sent me in uh, First Things. And if you, if you want, I can send it to you. But if you type in First Things... Uh, it's a journal, a Catholic journal. And Louise Perry, she wrote an article called We Are Repaganizing in the West, and it is superb. I don't think she's a Christian. She wrote a book last year. Uh, she's a feminist, and she wrote a book, uh, but, a, but a great writer and a, and a trenchant thinker. Um, she wrote a book about how the sexual revolution has failed. It's failed, all, it's failed women. And she's a, she's, she's a women's rights person, but she's like, it's an utter failure. It has actually led to utter slavery. Um, So Louise Perry, L-O-U-I-S-E, Perry. Louise Perry in First Things in the article is called We Are Repaganizing. And um, highly, highly recommended. But it helps us see um, that sexual liberation leads to death and slavery of of the weakest in society in all sorts of ways and the cheapening of life. And we're seeing it more and more here. Uh, Roman society was rife with it. And what the Christian gospel did is it started, to, it started to push that stuff back. And infanticide, too. And infanticide, too. Life was cheap. And that's one of the things she talks about. She said, we're, we're, seeing, we're seeing paganism take over again as we move farther and farther away from God. And one of the things that the church is going to do is it's going to, it's going to, uh, it's going to be a light that burns brightly and it stands out more and more and more, just as the early church did. Uh, and this is the kind of society that Paul's writing in the midst of. The start, sort of stuff that we're starting to see more and more of was, was common culture in Paul's day. And what Jesus came to do is to, uh, to, to bring us life um, by giving us his life. And so um, I know tonight was heavy. It's a heavy text. Uh, I promise you, Paul's not going to hold us under forever. Stay with us. It's worth the It's worth the journey that we're taking together. So well done being here tonight. Let me close in a brief word of prayer and then let's open it up for some questions and then we can, I know we're right at time right now, but we can ask. I'll stay here as long as we need to. Lord, thank you so much for, uh, again, for your word. Thank you for your spirit. Thank you, Lord. Just as we study the truth about our, all of our unrighteousness, thank God, Lord, that you, show, you sh- after showcasing homosexual sins, you just launch into this litany that damns all of us, but for your intervention, Lord Jesus. And as we look at this horror that our sin is to you and that our evil is to you uh, with clear eyes, I pray that it will have its intended effect, that it will help us to hate our sin and to love our Savior and to run to you, Lord, and to call others to run to you, to flee from the wrath to come because every sin will be paid for, either by us or Jesus by you on that cross. And so I thank you. I pray that our gratitude for what you have done for us would uh, increase. And I pray that it would bless that your word would not be without effect and would bless every one of us and that your love, uh, our love for you would grow uh, tonight and this week and that you would fill us all with your spirit and send us out from here with the gospel in our hearts and on our lips. In Jesus' name, amen. Anything? Uh, lots of stuff here. Any um, any questions?
1: Just a comment uh, a few years back. Uh, I was in another church, and a gentleman came. He was a former uh, homosexual, and uh, he explained that sixty-five percent of homosexuals are usually have been victims of rape by uh, a male or female, if it's a uh, female with female, male with male. But the hope that he gave was he was married with three children so God had saved him mm-hmm. and uh, he, I follow him You know, he's in uh, Minneapolis he has his mm-hmm. own church and okay, he helps huh. uh, people who are homosexuals. So there is hope
2: yeah, and
1: uh, uh, we just need to, like you said, to love on them mm-hmm. and yeah. uh, his name is Nathan, and he, he, he writes music. And when you see the family with the kids, you know where it's come from, and, mm. and it's beautiful. God
0: can do it. Yes, God with can any do anything with any of us. Yeah, yeah. Every sin in any of us causes an eternal separation between us and God. And Jesus, uh, he he bridge he bridges that gulf. You know, whether it's homosexuality or. But the question for us tonight was, and thanks for sharing that. The question for us tonight was, I just wanted to ask it because it's like, why does Paul showcase this? You know, and it's important for us to understand the text and his culture, but then for us to understand as well, obviously, and especially increasingly in our culture. So, thank you for that. And I remember that brings to mind, Mom, uh, Dennis Jernigan. The uh, I haven't thought about him for twenty years, but I remember in the '90s, back when I was like in the late '90s when I was going to college, you sent me with a couple of his albums to. But he was a worship leader, and he, was, he, he also was a practicing homosexual, and then God brought him out of that, and he ended up having a family and kids. And, but, yeah, I mean, and, and that reminds me of a text in one of, is it Paul's letters, where he says he has this list of sin, sinful lifestyles, and he includes all sorts of things, and homosexuals, and thieves, and murderers, and adulterers, and he says, and such for some of you, but you've been washed, you've been cleansed. You know, Jesus took that on himself, and he paid for it, paid for it, and He can, um, he can do it. And only he can do it. Um, what else? I yeah.
1: I touched about transgender. Yeah. Which is uh, what the enemy is really trying to bring uh, trouble into young minds.
2: Mm-hmm. You know, what you said about, mm-hmm. uh, you used the phrase acts at the root of the state. Like, I, I, I understand what you're saying, but in a way, I kind of think it's the, in some ways, it's the opposite. Yeah, talk Talk depends, to me. Because, um, you know, since ancient times, if you read like Plato's Republic literally, you know, mm-hmm. he says in forming like a perfect society, we're going to get rid of the philosopher rulers, right. they're basically raised communally. So yeah, the know, state takes them and raises them. You know your mother. Uh, Which we're father. seeing more and more as and the so, state rises. To, like the yeah. cultural revolution, or the Hitler Youth, mm-hmm. or, mm-hmm. Uh, you know, ancient totalitarianism mm-hmm. in the 20th century, it's, it's um, the act is at the, the root of the family. That's right. Because that's an obstacle to the power of the state. Big time. And, and even on the other aspects, like a, um, birth control or abortion, right, it's by decoupling procreation from, uh, from sex and also offering, uh, particularly, if I may say, like women, the option of sort of they don't need, you know, traditionally, like women need men. need men. Now they have the state. Um, no, that's great. A great point. Totally agree. Uh, very insightful. So you know, I, I see what you're saying, but yeah, in, in some ways, it's actually I think aimed at making, as you're saying, the state god.
0: Yeah, that's very insightful. 100 percent agree. Yeah, there's so much here. That's great. Great thought. You're you're right. Yeah, we see we're seeing more and more resemblances with with the ancient Roman state, and that should give us great hope, not depress us. It should actually okay. <gasps> I know we're all like, <sighs> but it should give us hope because. Look at history. Look at what—I mean, it was even—it was far darker. The things we're seeing on the edges here, like, it was far, far, far darker when Paul was writing this letter to the Roman church. Nero was, I mean, emperor. And, and, and uh, the Roman state was crushing Christians because there were just this little uprising. And then 300 years later, it became the official religion of the empire because it had so infiltrated culture and it was so good— for society and and through the crushing of and, and so and so all this it brought great light and now that light is spreading all over the world just like the Lord has said it would through His Word and so that and that will continue so um, be encouraged to see what the power that the gospel throughout the centuries has had on society it's and as you study American history the American history is the is the history of revivals it's not of it's not of like uh, we came we came here we our, the pilgrims did come here because they wanted to worship God freely and according to conscience and the scriptures but um, and not with, and apart from the coercion of the state. But by the time of the American Revolution, it's not well known that there was actually great. There wasn't Christianity was at a low ebb in our society. There was a lot of deism. Um, there was not. I mean, Christianity was not evangelical Christian. Biblical Christianity was at a low ebb, and and there were needed throughout the next hundred years massive revivals for God to revive His church, and thousands and tens of hundreds of thousands of people came to the faith. And the history of the United States is not a history of like greater and greater, and then all of a sudden it's dropped off recently, like no. Uh, it's God constantly reviving his people and bringing more and more people to the faith because we tend toward darkness. Like at the turn of the 20th century, before the Great World War, the First World War, um, like in, if you read studies of like ni- end of 19th century in New York, I mean there was, a- everything that's going on today was going on then. It was absolute, I mean you read about the Great Gatsby post-World War I, it's just, it's carnality, it's secularism, it's, that's what humans do. And then God intervenes, and so we be encouraged that this isn't the first time that this has happened. And God's, we can we can relate more and more to the society that Paul was writing to, as we and, and God's church will always will always have the day because Christ is our head. So, what else? Um, I know it's late, but maybe any anything else that y'all want to? Any more questions? So you
2: talked about um, the suppression of the truth and to me as i've read this passage in the past i always see that as unbelievers but would that apply to believers too like if we are struggling with a sin and we're like choosing to persist in it i mean god is not going to give us <clears throat> over in the same way he would give no Some that's right he doesn't have the spirit over but i mean does that apply at all to us when we read this should we just see it as to <clears throat> unbelievers or can it
0: apply I definitely think, that's a great question. I, I think that when you look at the overall argument, Paul is, he is by and large um, driving at those, largely Gentile right now, Gentile non-Jewish unbelievers who are non-regenerate. It's just basically the whole world aside from Israel. And then we'll see in, in chapter 2 he turns his guns on his own people, the Jews. Because he's like, he's, his, his goal is to show that no one is righteous. He'll actually literally say that He'll turn his, He's turned his guns on everybody but the Jews. Then he'll move to the Jews. And he'll be like, you also cannot stand in your own righteousness. You also, and then in chapter 3, he'll go, hey, let me just say it to everybody in case you missed it. No one is righteous. The scriptures actually say that. Have you missed it? And then, so he wants to paint all of this in a corner. So I think mainly he's going after, but I do think we'd be remiss if we didn't, weren't able to apply that and go, man, I see each, each one of these sins in my own heart still. And I and I know that every part of me every part of me that's carnal and that's not submitted to the the lordship of Christ, like I'm alive in Christ, but the the, the as Paul will go on to say in Romans, the old man is still alive and well until I die and see Christ face to face and I'm glorified. And the only thing for the old man to be done with the old man, the carnal man, is to be crucified. You can't put lipstick on a pig. And so that that old man will try his very best to suppress the truth. And it has to be surrendered to the Lord. Now, so, and we can talk more about, like, God will never abandon, he will never abandon his own. He'll never leave his own to, to go their own way fully. No, no, no. Uh, but, so that's, I don't want to get into treacherous, you know, but, but, so be encouraged. But I do think that's a, a good insight that, yeah, we, we do that too. We, we still suppress the truth in our righteousness. I probably do it every day. That's why we need the word. I mean, do you think, and each other, and the Spirit. Can I
2: speak out that? Like just my because this like just, uh, just very personal with me. Because like I, uh, in my you know my late twenties, started to drink more and more, and I got to a point where I was a full blown alcoholic. And uh, praise to God, so mm. I'll be three years sober next Monday. Wow! Wow! But we should celebrate. like I think you know what you're saying. Like I mean, you the scriptures say. God chastens those whom he loves. And so, but and also, like... That's we're, right. we're never, like, tempted beyond what we can bear. So I've always have, I've, I've thought, like, God did let me go. That's but, right. But he also, Certainly like... Did. But also, those years when I was suffering yeah. through addiction, it was, like, meant to lead me to repentance right? in a way. Do you think that that's, like, kind of similar to what you're saying about, like... I mean, we're not given over the way, like, a heathen is mm-hmm. or... Or an unbeliever. Sorry, you still have an un Yeah, right, but, um, right. I think we've I
0: think we've blown <laughs> way past that tonight. I think we've completely I just offended to say the culture.
2: Even, I just to say yeah, that, no, no, that's no, fair.
0: Um, no, I think that's but, good. You know, but,
2: but, like, in, in a real sense, I think maybe
0: maybe there's some truth to that. For sure, and I think in love, sometimes God does allow us. He lets us go in love, and I think we could apply a parable to that, right? The most beloved of the parables, the the prodigal son, where the turning point in the prodigal son is. Luke fifteen, uh, thanks for coming. Luke fifteen seventeen, where it, he's done everything, he's exhausted all his resources, and he would have continued if he'd continued to have resources to run from his father. But his save his salvation in a sense starts when he has nothing left, and he's got his father just lets him go, lets him go. That's not life. That's not self, that's not freedom. But then he, in verse seventeen, it says he comes to his senses. He gets to the lowest point where he doesn't have anywhere to look but up. And the Puritans called that the Valley of Vision, right? And he thinks, starts to think about, wait a minute, my dad. Oh, yeah. Like, if I just, and it says he comes to his senses. And that's what we ought to be praying for ourselves, but also for those who don't know the Lord, that God, would you bring them to their senses as they eat the pig slop? And all their friends leave them, as they're starving for true nourishment and for the reason uh, that they exist and for true satisfaction. And the one who holds pleasures in his right hand forevermore, would you bring them to their senses and have them Run home, and of course, the Lord uh, is the one who runs, who left home and run, runs after us, and that's who we, that's who we carry to, to other to those that that need Him. So, uh, that's I, I think that's great. Thank you for sharing that. Maybe one more. Um, we've only had one leave. That's that's surprising. I know we've gone over. Sorry, ten minutes over. Anything else? I know there's a ton here. Lots of questions. You said God's wrath comes from his love. Does it also come from a defense
2: of his holiness? And you know what I mean? Like that's what I've always, I don't know if I've ever like explicitly heard that, but I feel like that's always the feeling I get behind a lot of preaching I hear is like, it's a, from, and obviously he would be right for it to come from a place of personal interest, of course. But to hear that it stems from his love is, like, is it
0: a both and? Yes, for sure, in short. I think that's absolutely true. And I think that just thinking about, we could talk about it more off the record and also just in future, but keep, keeping that in mind that all, um, all of God's, he's a theologian, called God's a simple being, and that um, what that means is that all of, he always acts out of the fullness of who he is. He's never like, well, I'm going to be loving here. Mm-hmm. I'm going to be wrathful over here. I'm going to be just here. He always acts out of the fullness of his character and we see that some with people who are you know they're they, they're people of integrity they're integers they're lined up and they're connected and so they always act out of the, not always because we don't do it perfectly but a person of integrity will act out of an honesty and kindness will act out of a, um, who he or she who he or she truly is even in anger it's out of there's love there's a sense of justice there's all these things that, that are beauty, their love for beauty, they're connected to, and God is that supremely. And so, even in his wrath, he's acting out of his love. He's acting out of his holiness. His holiness is yeah, so, I, he's all yes, they're definitely connected. It's definitely in both hands. And that's, I mean, theologians have written thousands of pages, just even single theologians on that aspect, but that's a great truth, and I think you're right. Um, yeah, and sorry if I didn't, I mean, right, we, we, we dealt with half, half a chapter in an hour, but I definitely. This is just like a ding, ding, ding. You know, three points that kind of maybe give you um, some pegs to hang what Paul is saying here on as we as we continue to move through the letter. But but there's lots that we didn't cover, and that's definitely one of the things. So it's good. Um, well, I've prayed and uh, stay stay later if you want to ask more questions. But let me uh, let you guys go. Thanks so much for coming, and Thank you. God bless you.